to turn with me in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And as we turn to this passage of Scripture, I uh, remind you that we are um, continuing a revelation that John is reporting beginning in chapter 4 when he uh, hears a voice saying, Come up here. And John is ushered into the throne room of the manifest presence of God. And uh, last week I posed the question, you know, was this a kind of like a dream that John had? Was it a, was it a vision uh, that is uh, just essentially purely symbolic? Was he actually transported somewhere? Did he have an out-of-body experience? Or was this a pulling back of the curtain that he could see beyond this material world into the uh, supernatural world that surrounds us? And uh, this is my personal opinion, um, because we cannot say with absolute certainty, some may be better than others, but anyway, my, my feeling is, is that John uh, had the curtain pulled back, and that uh, the supernatural world was unveiled for him, uh, and he could see God in the Spirit, uh, in the heavenlies, where we have been made to dwell with Jesus Christ as well. We recognize that God is omnipresent, that means that He exist everywhere all at the same time. He doesn't have to go from here to Miami, to Los Angeles, to uh, Munich, to Jerusalem. He, he's everywhere at once. And any believer that has their eyes open to see the glorified uh, King of Kings upon the throne can see God wherever they are. And so I think what occurs is John has the curtain drawn back. And he sees into the heavenly realm and he recognizes that God's manifest presence uh, in that realm is one of glory and majesty as he sits upon the throne of the universe and all creation is under his authority and under his power. And, you know, that's the thing that John really wants the churches to get. That's the message of Christ to the churches. I am on the throne. They were suffering under Roman emperors who were tormenting them. And they were being arrested for their faith. And in some cases, in the locations in which they lived, they were being persecuted. Their, their Jewish brothers and sisters for, formally were persecuting them. And the Romans were persecuting them, and they were suffering for their faith. And in the midst of all of that, and, and loss, and perhaps a loved one had been put to death, perhaps a business had collapsed because it was being boycotted because they were Christians, um, perhaps other things had occurred, perhaps they saw their children reject their faith because it was too costly and they had uh, gone a, a different course and direction and there was estrangement within the family. You can imagine all of these kinds of things. 
And in the midst of this turmoil, one wonders, God, where are you? Where are you? What's happening to me? I'm faithful to you. I'm following you. I want to serve you. And, And all I'm getting is this grief and this hardship and this loss and this tragedy. Where are you? And John wants them to see what he is seeing. As Jesus brings the message to him for the churches, the the dominant message of Revelation, and we'll see this again and again and again, God is on the throne. God is on the throne. And in the end, we win. This life is temporary at best. Rowena and I were talking about it just the other evening. I don't know if it was, probably wasn't last night because I fell asleep way too early. But it may have been the night before we were were talking about loved ones who have gone on before us. And and we were talking about history's greats. I had mentioned William Gurnall, who uh, had written a book, The Christian in Full Armor. And that book has been updated from the uh, English of his day in the 1700s to uh, contemporary English. And I was talking about that, and it was like, who, who remembers, who even knows William Gurnall? Just a few hundred years ago, he's passed off the scene. People die, and they become forgotten after even our closest loved ones, after... Some years, unless we look at a photograph, at times it's hard to recollect the image. And after three or four generations have passed, no one knows who we are. I never met my great-grandparents. Well, I did meet one of them. But beyond that, uh, the great-great-grandparents I never, never met, never saw, never knew. I wouldn't know them if I stumbled over them, if they appeared today and and I ran into them literally. I wouldn't know who they were. They have gone beyond. And when you think of that, life is a fleeting vapor. We suffer, we struggle, we have joys, we have blessings, we have birth, we have death. We go through life in a lot of different ways. But it does come to its end. And in a relatively short time compared to human history. I'm not going to leave you on this draggy note this morning. (laughs) I promise. But the thing that, that God wants us to realize is what is important is what lasts. Don't be afraid of those that can only kill the body. You say, what? Well, that's the worst that can happen. No, it's not. Rather fear the one who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. That's the one to be concerned about, and that, of course, is God. And Jesus' message is, this life is temporary. James says it's a fleeting vapor. And the Lord Jesus is communicating to His church and to us. I am on the throne. I am in charge. I hold you in the palm of my hand. 
Nothing can separate you from my love. I will never leave you. I will see you safely through every eventuality and occurrence. And I will bring you safely to my heavenly kingdom. And there you will abide with me forever in my presence. Nothing can hurt you for very long. I am on the throne. And that's the message of chapters 4 and 5. John wants us to see that. And as we turn to our chapter 5, John didn't bother with the chapter divisions. We added those so we could find our place more easily. And as we come to chapter 5, the, the vision shifts the image of the one upon the throne to the Lamb who is standing beside the throne. And even though this chapter introduces to us the scroll, which is the first of seven unfolding plagues and events, the heart of this chapter is the Lamb, who is worthy to break the seals. And so, as we look at Revelation 5, um, beginning in verse 1, let me read that for you. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John sees a scroll. It's an unusual scroll. It has writing on both sides. Typically, a scroll was only written on one side. But here is one with writing on both sides. Apparently, the significance of the scroll represents the story of salvation of humankind from the very beginning until the end. And no one can open the scroll. Uh, It's as if it appears and everyone wants to see into it, everyone wants to read it, that is gathered there in the throne room, and no one can open that scroll. And John... The the literal translation in the NIV does pretty well here. John, it says, weeps and weeps. As if he's heartbroken, as if he's desperate, and he's seen something that he wants to look into, and no one can open it for him. And he is so deeply moved that he just begins to, to sob, as it were, over this scroll. And one of the elders comforts him, and he says, John, John, there is one who is worthy. And he says, this one is 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. One of the reasons that most uh, Bible scholars feel that this scroll represents not only the, the seals that have certain cataclysmic events, but that the scroll itself represents those redeemed from all the ages, is that only the one who has purchased them with his blood is worthy to open it. He is the one who has bought us with his blood. You know, uh, I have uh, in my office, uh, actually in two places, um, I have the record for our church history, and then I have my personal records. And every time I perform a wedding ceremony, I make a copy of the marriage license and the marriage certificate. And I, uh, I put that in my folder, and then a copy goes in the history of the church. So that at any time, you know, we can look and, and find those uh, copies and, and representations of the marriage license. That license is the proof that a covenant was established. It goes on record in the county office, and it becomes the document that proves beyond question that a couple have merged their lives and belong to each other in a covenant relationship. Whatever else we may say about what is happening in our culture with the institution of marriage, the reality is that it begins with a covenant relationship that becomes a record on file in the county office. And this scroll, in some ways, apparently represents the covenant relationship that God has established with His people through our Lord Jesus Christ. That He is bound to us in a covenant commitment and only He is worthy to open that scroll and reveal that covenant relationship. He is the only one who has taken it upon himself to purchase with his own blood his bride. I know that that's a foreign concept in our culture, but honestly, in most of the world, there is still the exchange of the dowry and in many respects, although the practical application of the, of the uh, bridegroom paying a dowry to the bride's parents, the essence of that is, I am compensating you, as it were, for her life. You gave birth, you raised her, you cared for her, and now I am going to compensate you in some way and take her to be mine. And she will be my bride. And uh, 
I, we could argue a long time about all of that, and I'm just not going to go there. But, but this is this is the background of the culture biblically, and in essence, what this scroll represents that the lion of the tribe of Judah has purchased with his own blood is that the world no longer has a claim upon his bride. There is no sin that has not been covered and paid for that prevents her from a full and free relationship with him. There is nothing that can interrupt or interfere and no charge that can be brought that will separate the bridegroom of Jesus, the, the bridegroom Jesus from his bride, the church. He is the one who has redeemed her and purchased her with his blood. And he is the only one who is worthy to unveil the scroll. Who is this lion of the tribe of Judah? In Revelation 5-6, John says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb, which had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. I want you to think about the wording of this passage for just a moment. There are those who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And I am coming to realize I have always loved John's gospel in the opening chapter as proof positive of his deity although it is well substantiated in many other writings of the Scriptures, but I am coming to realize that Revelation is the clearest unfolding of the identity and deity of Christ of any passage. John, in chapter 4, tells us of one who sits upon the throne. And who is that one? We know that He is God. There's no question. But now notice in chapter in verse 6 it says, The Lamb is standing at the center of the throne. Who is in the throne? It is God the Father unveiled for us in chapter 4. But now who is standing in the midst of the throne? It is the Lamb of God. And the elders and the four living creatures are surrounding Him as they have been surrounding the Father, the God of the universe. And notice that the Lamb is standing. Every other time we see the elders and the living creatures, as they fall down and worship, they are on their faces before Him. But here, the Lamb is standing in God's presence. 
who is worthy to stand as an equal in the presence of God. None other than God Himself. And Jesus, John says in His Gospel, was face to face, nose to nose, toe to toe with the Father. Because He is in every respect equal to Him. I also want to call your attention to the fact that the elder comforted John by saying, John, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And I looked, he said, and saw a lamb. The only lion in Revelation is a lamb. Isn't that amazing? That our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is really the Lamb who was slain for all the earth. I want to read you, it's a little longer passage, and I don't typically do this uh, in terms of reading someone else's material, but it's just too good to attempt to paraphrase. And uh, it's by John Piper called The Excellence of Jesus Christ, the Lion of the Lamb. I also want to say, because every time I uh, do something like this or quote someone, they, everybody thinks I agree with them, and I'm a fan. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan, necessarily, uh, of John Piper's theology. So don't go away with that impression. Uh, I think there are a lot of uh, flaws in uh, a severe Calvinism that I'm not going to get into uh, in defense of the article. But, nonetheless, he has brilliant, Holy Spirit-anointed insight into the lion and the lamb. And he writes with power as he contemplates this image that John is seeing. And I want to read you some of the uh, things that he has to say. He says, A lion is admirable for its ferocious strength and imperial appearance. A lamb is admirable for its meekness and servant-like provision of wool for our clothing. But even more admirable is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. What makes Christ glorious, as Jonathan Edwards observed over 250 years ago, is an admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies. For example, we admire Christ for His transcendence, but even more because the transcendence of His greatness is mixed with submission to God. We marvel at Him because His uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness. In His equality with God, He has a deep reverence for God. 
Though he is worthy of all good, he was patient to suffer evil. His sovereign dominion over the world was clothed with the spirit of obedience and submission. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom, but was simple enough to be loved by children. He could still the storm with a word, but would not strike the Samaritans with lightning or take himself down from the cross. The glory of Christ is not a simple thing. It is a coming together in one person of extremely diverse qualities. We see it in the New Testament book of Revelation. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Here is the triumphant lion-like Christ ready to unroll the scroll of history. But what do we see in the next verse? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the lion is a lamb, an animal that is weak and harmless and lowly and easily preyed upon Sheared naked for clothes and killed for food. So Christ is a lamb-like lion. In case you missed the parallel, let me point out to you that Jesus Christ, like the lamb, was uh, shorn to clothe us in the robe of righteousness, as was the animal in the Garden of Eden. Uh, killed to provide a covering for the shame of Adam and Eve. And notice that he was slaughtered for our food, and that in the Passover they are instructed to slay the lamb, a choice yearling, and to feast together upon the lamb because he is the bread of life and the living water. Our Lord Jesus is our covering of shame and our clothing for sin. And He is also our food and our sustenance, our bread and our drink. He provides for us all that we need in His meekness. The the imagery really, as John chooses a word that is more powerful than slain, you can slay a creature, an animal, or a person with gore, or quite simply, a 22 bullet through the heart will rather cleanly kill a person. Or you can take a machete and hack them into a mess. And the word that John uses is he was slaughtered like a lamb with his throat cut and his blood flowing over his white wool. But notice that he is standing because he is not in a crumpled heap as one dead. He is standing as one resurrected and raised, and standing in the presence of God, and worthy to be there.
The Lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of the Lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne. And he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife. And they slaughtered the lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. But what sort of lamb? Revelation 5, 6 says the lamb was standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Notice two things. The lamb is standing. It's not slumped in a bloody heap on the ground. Yes, it had been slain, but now it's standing in the innermost circle next to the throne. Second, the lamb has seven horns. A horn is a symbol of strength and power throughout the book of Revelation as well as in the Old Testament. And the number seven signifies full and complete. So this is no ordinary lamb. He is alive from the dead, and he is completely mighty in his sevenfold strength. In fact, he is a lion like lamb, with the symbol of power and strength and, and ability on his head. We see this with trembling in Revelation where men call on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And we see it in Revelation seventeen fourteen. they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. You can find the rest of this... Um, devotional paper, if you look, John Piper, The Lion and the Lamb on the internet. You can read the rest of it. An amazing insight into our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has the strength of a lion and the gentle meekness of a lamb. And he is our friend our elder brother, the lover of our soul, our bridegroom, this is the one who is with us all the way to the end. And in Revelation 5, 7 to 10, as the Lamb uh, takes the scroll from the one on the throne, the four creatures and elders fall down and worship. Notice that he is receiving that worship. And the elders hold the prayers of the saints through the ages in golden bowls. Uh, they come with bowls full of incense which represent the prayers of the saints. I want to remind you this morning that God always hears you. He always hears you. And He stores up as treasure your request whether they have already been answered or they are yet to be answered. Notice that our God never forgets our prayers. And the elders hold them in bowls of incense that ever rise to the nostrils of God as a reminding, wafting perfume of the things that we have asked and desired and need. 
God is always attentive to us forever. He will never forget. When you feel that God hasn't heard you, when you feel that you have prayed and prayed and you're still waiting for the answer, when, when you feel that you're in the darkest of night and you have cried for the light and the light has not yet come, remember that God has stored all of your heart's longings up and He has not forgotten. And He is the one who makes all things new. We have a future, and in that future all things will find their resolution in God Himself. I just find it very comforting. It's, it's almost like a parenthetical side note, but I find it comforting that the elders are holding in bowls of incense all the prayers that I have requested. And they are continually wafting in the presence of God. The worthiness of the Lamb to open the scroll was because of His redemptive mission and salvation. He has redeemed a remnant of people from every tribe and language and nation. You know, I've said this many times before, but I repeat it again this morning. It is just not possible for someone who loves God to be a racist or prejudiced in any way. It is just not possible. We have been made from one blood, all the peoples of the earth. You can go back to Noah and his family, and then you can go beyond to Adam. But all of us derive our heritage from Adam and Eve and from Noah and his family. All of us have our beginnings in these two families. We all belong as part of one another. And I don't care who they are or where we find them. As I watch the news reports and see the scenes of tragedy and um, weather catastrophes in Indonesia or Sri Lanka, or I see the bomb blast and the death of family members and children in the Middle East, or I see the people on the streets of Paris and in Europe weeping over the loss of their family, I see people in South America and Central America as they mourn the loss and death of those who have been uh, under the curse of all kinds of dictatorships and persecution and the drug lords. Friends, people love their families the same. They love their children. They weep over their loss. They grieve. They are happy in their weddings. I, I watched an Indian wedding when I was at council last in California. I was able to look out the second floor window of my hotel room and see a traditional Indian wedding. 
and uh, the bridegroom was riding a white stallion and all of the regalia of the finest of clothing. And the bride and her bridesmaids were dressed in, in just beautiful saris, uh, ornamented with gold. And, and the glory and pageantry and beauty of that. And no, they weren't Christians by any means. They, they had their idols and their gods uh, as a part of the ceremony and even a shrine built to one of their gods uh, where they would give their vows. But they celebrated the wedding and they danced on the sidewalk and they danced around the bridegroom and then the wedding progressed as they danced together and they celebrated the joy of that union and the beginning of a new family. Friends, people have the same heart the world over. It doesn't matter the color of skin. It doesn't matter our culture. It doesn't matter what we value or despise as a culture. The reality of the fact is people are just people. And they all matter to God. Every person matters to God. And if they're not already a brother or sister, our heart's cry is that they will become one. Because God loves them. And Jesus shed His blood to redeem them. And there is no room in the family of God. There's no room for any kind of racism or prejudice to exist. We are one. And God is waiting for that moment before Jesus returns. He tells us this in Matthew 24 and 25, that as the message of the Gospel goes out into all the world, there will come that time when every tribe and tongue and nation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will give their heart and life to Christ. And when that last person makes that decision, I believe the trumpet will sound and Jesus will come for His bride because now she is complete. And He's waiting for that moment as a bridegroom waits for the day of His wedding with holy anticipation he is longing for that last person. And it doesn't matter if they're a black African as, as black as, as black soot. It doesn't matter if they're Asian. It doesn't matter if they're European. It doesn't matter if they're Latino or Hispanic. It doesn't matter if they're Anglo. It doesn't matter when the last person says yes to Jesus Christ. The family will be complete. And Jesus will come for His bride. We need to check our hearts and spirit before Almighty God and make certain that there is in us not one shred of pride or arrogance or prejudice over any other people group. Because we are all of one blood. And we have one heart. And, and we, we are one people. I, I used to find it fascinating in my conversations with Pastor Ector that as we would talk about colloquial sayings, uh, you know what I mean, like a stitch in time saves nine. 
um, th- those kinds of things. There are Spanish equivalents in Mexico. Uh, of just about every saying we have, there's a way to say it in Spanish. It's, it it's comes at it totally different, but it ultimately derives to the same meaning exactly. People everywhere in the world have a way of saying things that, that betray the fact that we are really one family. We have the same body of wisdom. We've made the same observations. We are one people. Oh, that our eyes could be open. I'm tempted to chase a political trail. I'm going to resist. Just let me say. (laughs) All lives matter. All lives matter. And the problem we have is a sin problem at, at its root. The lion, lamb, is the eternal Son of God, fully equal to God the Father. You know, as, as John completes the story of what he has seen in the fifth chapter, we find this amazing conclusion that as the Lamb takes the scroll, verse 7, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then verse 11. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. I'll let you do the math. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to him uh, and, and to the Lamb. Notice the unity to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. We will see in Revelation chapter 22 that... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are a unity in Trinity and and a holiness in our God. As we find in Exodus chapter 20 in the first of the commandments, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship none other. And yet here are the four living creatures and the 24 elders 
and all of the angels, ten thousand times ten thousands and myriads upon myriads of angels. And then John, in that futuristic uh, perception of what is coming, sees every creature that is on the earth and above the earth and under the sea and, and all over, crying out, worthy, worthy, holy, holy, this one, to receive praise. No one is worthy to receive praise but God, but the Lamb receives praise. Friend, if you're here this morning and there was ever a doubt in your mind that our Lord Jesus Christ is God eternal, this should put an end to it. God Himself was clothed in human flesh and came to redeem and rescue us. And our Lord Jesus was raised from the grave and is now standing at the throne of God. And He is worthy of praise. The one who says, as I reminded you a few moments ago, I have called you my friends because I have shown you and revealed to you all things. You are my friends. He loves us. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how close He is to you? Do you know how much He cares about your life? I love the way that Vernon concluded our service last week in the benediction, reminding us that our Lord Jesus Christ is also our elder brother and our friend and our bridegroom, and we are loved by Him. And we need to be reminded of that constantly, that He loves us, that He loves us. Doesn't mean we don't mess up, doesn't mean we need to go to Him and say, Lord, I am so sorry. It doesn't mean we need to keep the air clear between us and Repent of our sin when we disappoint Him and disobey His Spirit. It doesn't mean that there is not difficulty in the relationship now, but you need to know that He loves you. That He always receives you. That His arms are always open to you. And He is the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah upon the throne. He has all authority, all power in heaven and earth. What is it like to have a friend like Jesus? It's amazing. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning for giving your life as you did for us. You are the lion-like lamb. You are the lamb-like lion. You have redeemed us with your blood. And you have raised us with you in newness of life to dwell in your presence in the heavenly realm, even now. Lord, evermore may this vision of the throne 
stay fresh in our minds that no matter how dark the night, how long the trial, how painful the suffering, how difficult the path, you will never leave our side and you will bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name we give you praise and honor and glory and power. Amen.